The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. I'm singing this song today on a wing and a prayer, okay? I want you to pray. This is the most unrehearsed I've ever gotten up and sang. Haven't sung with a piano or any instrument in way over 10 days, but I, I must sing this song today. And I want you to picture the city of Jerusalem high on a hill. I want you to picture the events that were wrought there that brought about your salvation and my salvation.
This has been a wonderful uh, 10 days. Uh, uh, the motto of our trip this time was, I ran today where Jesus walked. And uh, we certainly did a lot of that. Uh, I made my way through the stations of the cross with uh, two bad knees and the grace of God. Uh, I didn't keep up with the group. Uh, I kept them in sight. Uh, we went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I didn't go in because I'd been there before and what I saw in there did not bless or impress me. But on Friday afternoon, we went to Gordon's Calvary and nearby is a place called the Garden Tomb. And I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. I don't wanna get ahead of myself. Uh, but I wanna tell you uh, that we have seen the place where the Lord lay. And we can come to tell you he is not there. He is risen just as he said. Take your copy of God's word and turn to me with uh, to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Uh, there's a great uh, mystery in, in this verse that answers a lot of questions that I have after my second trip to the Holy Land. And we're gonna talk about some of those mysteries and then a lot of the assurances that I have. So when you find John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, join me in standing, please, as we show our respect for the word of the living God. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. I did have a new experience on this trip. Uh, that I, In fact, I had two new experiences. I had my first and my last camel ride. Uh, <laughs> We went to a play, wonderful experience. I appreciate uh, Hank and Sheila planning this. It was kind of a surprise. Uh, we went out into the Judean desert and uh, we came upon a place and we were told that Abram was gonna be our host that night and we we're gonna eat in the tent, which we did, and that we were gonna ride to that tent on camels. And I thought, well, I don't know about that. And so Mary and I decided that would probably be our last uh, opportunity to do that at our age. Uh, but we also decided both of us need not ride the same camel. Uh, I said at least one of us will survive uh, to tell the grandchildren about the other one. And so Mary rode the camel with Margaret Weaver, and I got on the camel that they had chosen especially for me. I said, I've never ridden a camel. And they said, well, we have a camel right over here. It's never been ridden. So uh, this, ought to be, this ought to be fun. And so I got up on the camel and... Uh, uh, I got up on the camel and then the camel got up and uh, that was just nothing short of a miracle. I thought they were going to write it down in, in one of the books over there. Uh, but I got on my camel and we rode down to the place and the poor old camel, uh, he kept looking back to see where all the other legs were. Uh, he, all he could see were two legs and he said, I know there are four or five people up there. I wonder where their legs are. Uh, but we made it safely to Abraham's camp and had a wonderful supper there. 
And uh, we watched the sunset in the Judean wilderness, a place where Jesus knew well, a place where John the Baptist preached. And uh, we began our trip, of course, uh, uh, landing at the airport and then going up to uh, the town of Caesarea by the sea where Paul uh, was held and where he made a defense of the gospel. And we had a little service there in the amphitheater and didn't really preach much, but Mary sang and we sang, uh, I know whom I have believe it. And uh, then we went on up that day to Mount Carmel, and I'll talk about that more later. And uh, then at the end of that day, we made our way up to the Galilee uh, region and checked into our hotel after we had a Jordan River baptism. And it was a great Jordan River baptism. We do have photographs of some people being baptized in a, in a cold Jordan River. The old spiritual says the Jordan River is chilly and cold. It chills your body, but not your soul. Uh, that spiritual is every bit true. If you've ever been baptized in the Jordan River, especially in December, it will chill your body, but not your soul. But I want to talk about three things, three areas today. First of all, the area of Galilee. Uh, Galilee was important because Jesus grew up in the region of Galilee. His hometown was Nazareth, and he spent more years in Nazareth than any other place. In fact, he grew up in Nazareth from a small boy, and uh, we're told about how he grew up. The Bible says he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then at the age of 12, we're told that he went to the temple and confounded the elders at the temple. And then for the rest of his adult life, until he was about 30 years old, he grows up in Nazareth, and we know nothing about the, those years of his life. They're the silent years. But once he began his earthly ministry, three things happened in the area of Galilee. First of all, he began to call his disciples. The Bible says as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Andrew, and his Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, they were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, he said, and I will make you fish for people. And uh, he did exactly that. They answered his call. Uh, in the little village of Capernaum, which is one of my favorite places to visit, because it was a thriving little village in Jesus' day, and now it's a ghost town. And it's one of those towns that uh, Jesus said would, would be condemned at the day of judgment. In fact, he said it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it would be for Capernaum, for Bethsaida, and for a town called Chorazin. And I, I wondered about that because we're not told in the Bible anything about Chorazin. And I thought, why would Jesus condemn Chorazin without a reason? Well, I read the Bible. You know, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And my question was answered right here. It said, that many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Everything that Jesus did is not written in the Gospels. Uh, everything that Jesus does today is not written down. He is still writing the book of Acts every time someone comes into the kingdom. Uh, the book of Acts is being completed. Every time somebody is discipled, uh, the kingdom is being completed. And so he called his disciples, first of all, in Galilee. And then when I think about Galilee, I think about the crowds. Uh, he, he was not popular in Jerusalem, so he moved his sphere of opportunity and influence over to Capernaum and spent many years there. Uh, but while he was there, the Bible says when Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. What Jesus heard about was the death of John the Baptist. Of all the things that happened to Jesus during his earthly ministry, I don't think anything happened to him that affected him more than the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not merely his cousin. 
John the Baptist was the biblical forerunner. He was the one that was predicted by the prophet Isaiah who was to come to prepare the way of the Lord. And of men, Jesus said, there has never been a greater man born of women than John the Baptist. And Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been brutally murdered by Herod. And so Jesus wanted to withdraw to a remote place to be alone. But the crowds followed him there. And Jesus did not turn them away. He loved people and he still loves people. He loves everyone here today. You see, that's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that we are all sinners, but Jesus is the friend of sinners. In fact, if you're a sinner today, I have good news for you. There is only one Savior. There aren't many saviors. There's only one Savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Savior because he became sin for us. Crowds loved the Lord Jesus. But then there was calm. There was a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and his disciples knew well the Sea of Galilee. In fact, we saw a little boat uh, right there in the old village of Bethsaida, close to where Jesus fed the 5,000. There was another place close by where he fed the 4,000. And they found a boat years ago uh, that was buried in mud. The, there was a drought, and this boat had not seen the light of day for nearly 2,000 years, and two brothers found it. And so they began to decide how to remove that boat from the mud of the Sea of Galilee, and they found a way to do it. They encased it in some kind of foam, and they moved it now to a place, a museum. You know what I thought was so interesting? As I looked at the boat, there was a thing on the wall that described what made up the boat, and I noticed there were 12 types of wood that made up that boat. Hmm, 12, hmm. 12, hmm, in the Bible, 12, hmm. This boat dates back to biblical times, hmm, 12. All right, 12. Well, I think I believe that there were 12 tribes of Israel. And I think I believe that there were 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. And if you look at the wood in that boat, there were two kinds of wood that stuck out. One type of wood was called Christ thorn. Christ thorn. And another type of wood in that boat was a Judas tree. Now, do you think, do you just happen to think that that happened by accident? If you do, I have some swamp land in Arizona that I always give you. If you're that foolish, everything that happened to Jesus happened for a reason. Everything that happens to us happens for a reason. And we need to understand that. There were crowds that followed Jesus, and when the storms came, he calmed them. Now, here's the thing important about that. Some of you are going through a storm right now. I just remembered to, that I was handed a note to pray for Bobby and Jean Godfrey's daughter, Robin, who's sick and has had to be taken to, uh, to Shelby Medical Center. We need to pray for her. That's a storm. Uh, I was told of a dear friend of mine just a moment ago, who's going through a storm in his life. And, uh, we've had church members here who in the last few weeks have gone through storms, storms of losing loved ones uh, in our minds far, far too early. And people dealing with cancer and, and other people dealing, dealing with issues that are extremely hard to deal with. Well, I want us to remember that Jesus loves everyone. And when the storms of life are raging, he will stand by you 
and he'll be a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. When I see Galilee, I think about those three things. I think about the call. I think about the crowds. I think about the calm. If he can calm the sea, he may not calm the storm in my life, but he'll keep me calm in the storm. So I think about that when I think about Galilee. And then I think about Gethsemane. We came to Gethsemane. It was getting dark. We parked the bus just on the hill above Gethsemane. We went out to a little place. And I want to tell you, I really loved this trip because I was the preacher. And man, I, I tell you what, in case you hadn't noticed, I love being the preacher. I really do. You say, well, you told us you're going to quit. No, I'm not ever going to quit preaching. I said I'm going to quit pastoring, but I'm still going to be a preacher. And probably in my heart, I'll still be a pastor uh, because that's part of preaching, being a pastor. But I'm, I promise this, I'm not going to be the new pastor's antagonist. I'm going to be his, his biggest ally. But I was in charge of the preaching. I let Brother Don preach on the Sea of Galilee. He did a wonderful job. In fact, Brother Don, we even arranged to have a storm for you on the Sea of Galilee. I didn't know if you knew we arranged that or not, but uh, some of the folks didn't really appreciate it when we were bobbing up and down on the Sea of Galilee like a cork. But uh, Brother Don did a wonderful job. But when we got into the city, uh, and by the way, uh, I, I carried a bunch of old songs. You say, how old were they? I had Pat copy them out of the Broadman Hymnal. That's how that you said, Broadman Hymnal, it was dug up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, all right? Just, uh, you want to know how old the Broadman Hymnal was. Uh, but we stood there on top of the Mount of Olives after we'd come in and heard Jerusalem that Mary just sang, sung by John Starnes as we rode in on the bus. We got to the, to the top of, of the Mount of Olives, and here's what we sang. We sang, Come we that love the Lord, and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord. Join in a song with sweet accord. And thus around the throne, and thus around the throne. We looked at Jerusalem and sang, We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, Zion, the beautiful city of God. And then instead of marching to Zion, we got on the bus and rode to Zion. <laughs> we rode to the bottom of the hill where across the Kidron Valley we could see the eastern gate that's been shut up, the beautiful gate that's been shut up for many years. Aha, I have good news. It will be opened again. And people will walk through that gate and they will walk onto the Temple Mount where a beautiful temple, not a mosque, will sit during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. We got down to the bottom of the hill, though. And down at the bottom of the hill, to me, is one of the most sacred places in all of Jerusalem. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And we walked into the Garden of Gethsemane. And we walked into the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was just about dark. And I told our folks, you go around and pray. This is where Jesus prayed. And so we started to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. We prayed for some of you by name in the Garden of Gethsemane. We prayed for some families by name. We prayed for the entire church family. When we got through praying, we met together and we sang as a group the Lord's Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There weren't many dry eyes in the crowd. But in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed alone. He always loved to be with the disciples, but on the night before he was crucified, the Bible says, then he withdrew from them 
about a stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray. We didn't preach in the Garden of Gethsemane, but I did tell our people that it was only in Gethsemane where Christ prayed this prayer. He said, my father. You look at all the other prayers in the Garden of, the Garden of Gethsemane, all the other prayers in Jesus' earthly ministry, he said on occasions, Father, our Father, Abba, Father, but only in the Garden of Gethsemane did Jesus say, My Father. He called upon God as his Father. only time he ever used that phrase is in the Garden of Gethsemane. But not only was he alone, he prayed in anguish. It said, being in anguish, he prayed even more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. You say, preacher, how did it feel to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? I felt unworthy. I felt unworthy because I realized Jesus was sweating great drops of blood, not for himself, but for me. You say, what was the source of his prayer? He knew what had to be done, and he prayed. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so we prayed, and we closed our prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done, and sang the Lord's Prayer. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he accepted God's will. I learned on my first trip to the Holy Land something I really never fully realized until then. The battle for salvation was won literally in the garden. If he had said no in the garden, there would be no salvation. If he had said no in the garden, we wouldn't be gathered here this morning and we wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. But in the garden of Gethsemane, he accepted the Father's will. He said, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will but as you will. I wonder this morning if there's somebody here who's running from the will of God. You know God wants you to do something. You know God wants you to be a prayer warrior. You know God wants you to be a Bible student. Maybe some of you young people, you know God is calling you to the ministry, but you have other plans and you want to do what you want to do. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus surrendered finally once for all to the will of the Father when he said, not as I will, but as you will. Brother Don did a wonderful job preaching on the Sea of Galilee. Had a wonderful service there. Guess what? The captain of the boat was a Jewish Christian. How neat is that? Our guide for the entire time was a Jewish Christian. We did not have an unbeliever. We had a completed Jew be our guide through the Holy Land. The acceptance on the Mount of Olives. Dr. John R. Rice visited there many years ago, and here's what he said. This is the sermon in a statement. Wouldn't it be a good thing if Christians would come some way and enter, enter Gethsemane with Jesus, join him in prayer, join him in, in a burden for sinners, and then be willing to see the will of God done at any cost? Are you willing to say with Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done? So we visited Galilee, and I love Galilee. By the way, in Galilee, there was something I don't think I mentioned. Jesus condemned a town called Chorazin. He condemned the town of Capernaum. 
he condemned the town of Bethsaida, where he had been. We have no biblical record of Jesus being in Chorazin. Why would he condemn a town that he'd never been to? Well, John answers that question when he says many other signs. Truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. You see, we don't have every record of every word Jesus ever said, but we need to take seriously the words we do have. I'm not worried about the words we don't have. I'm worried about the words we do have that we don't live up to. And then we came to Jerusalem. What a wonderful time we had in Jerusalem. As we came in, we heard the holy city on the bus CD, and as we topped that hill, we saw the golden dome of the dome of the rock, and we saw the eastern gate shut up, and then we went to the top of the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended from, and there we sang marching design, there we went down to the bottom and had our prayer service at, at, uh, the, at the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we spent three days touring Jerusalem. And the final thing Jesus did in Jerusalem, in his earthly ministry, he was crucified. He said, the Bible says, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means skull, place. I walked the way of the cross, but when we came to the church of the sepulcher, I did not go in. You say, well, were you protesting? No, I wasn't protesting. I've been there. I've been to the church of the sepulcher. And I, I honestly don't believe that was where Jesus was crucified. There's several reasons. It was inside the city walls, as far as I know. And just a few feet away is what they say is the empty tomb. Now, the Bible says the empty tomb was nearby in a garden, but it doesn't say it was just a few feet away. But on the last day we were in Jerusalem, we closed our day by going to a place called Gordon's Calvary and the Garden Tomb. When Jesus went to Golgotha, he literally died on the top of a hill that looks like a skull. We went there Friday afternoon and we, we saw the skull and we got there and we sang, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and for contempt on all my pride. We looked at the skull hill. The Arabs don't like it. In fact, the Arabs years ago put a bus station. They closed the mouth of the skull. You can see the picture before the bus station was put there, and there was a mouth down at the foot of the skull, but when they built the Arab bus station, they closed the mouth of the skull. And on top of the hill of Golgotha, they put a cemetery for all the uh, Muslim warriors who were killed during the days of the crusader. They put a cannon up there and they even put the statement of faith of Islam on the outside of the wall on Skull Hill. And I want to tell you something. They can do everything they want to do to try to make us forget what Jesus did on Golgotha. And those of us who know him will never forget what he did there. What did he do? He gave us a word of forgiveness. Jesus said from the cross, his first statement, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. I want to encourage you, if you're holding a grudge against somebody, do yourself a favor today and forgive them. Jesus thought it important enough from the cross to forgive the people who nailed him there. Even if they never believed in him, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Don't hold a grudge against anybody, especially against another believer. Do yourself a favor and forgive them as Jesus forgave people from the cross. 
But then he talked about our future. He said, and he said to him, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. That's the promise to all of us who love Jesus. He died on Golgotha. He shed his life's blood for us. His blood was shed. He became sin for us. He died. Now let me say this. I, I may be getting ahead of myself. Uh, but he did not die because of crucifixion. He died because it was God's will for him to die. And he said this. He said, no man takes my life from me. I lay my life down. You say, how, how do you know he did that? The last words Jesus ever said were fr from the cross. And he could not have said this uh, if he were crucified like any normal man. It said he cried with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Only a man who still had strength could do that. But the Bible says he cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. I want to tell you this. My belief is that if Jesus had not given up the ghost, he'd still be on that cross right now. Because that's the kind of power the Son of God had. But it was God's will and he gave up his life. But before he did that, there was a time when he was forsaken. I think this was the agony for Jesus. Realizing there would come a time in those dark hours on the cross when he who knew no sin became sin for us. He didn't dread the pain of the cross. He did not dread the, the embarrassment of the cross. What he dreaded on the cross was he who knew no sin became sin for us. In a moment, all the sins of all the world for all time the wrath of God was poured on Jesus. We sang it a few moments ago. For on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God will either be satisfied on the cross on Jesus for you and me, or it will be satisfied in hell on us for all eternity. And that's a choice everyone has to make. Not just those of us who claim to be Christians, but everyone in the world. The Bible says there's no other way to come through the Father except by him. He was forsaken in the dark hours on the cross. But then he said another word. He said, it is finished. And he did not say, I am finished, but rather it is finished. The plan of salvation promised to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and illustrated by the rescue of Israel from Egypt and proclaimed by the prophets has been accomplished. Come to the empty tomb and see, then go and tell, Jesus saved. When we left Golgotha, we went just a few feet into a garden where there was a cistern in Jesus' day. And it was a new garden, and there was a new tomb in that new garden. And we got the opportunity to walk through the door of that tomb. And everyone who went in can say with verity, He is not here. He is risen. We stood at the entrance of that tomb. By the way, the cross wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. The cross was rolled away so we could look in. And he was not there. He said, then what did you do? Oh, the, here comes the icing on the cake. Brother Phil, it was getting near sunset in Jerusalem. And guess what day it was? It was Friday. You say, what's so big about Friday? When did Jesus die on Good Friday? When does the Sabbath begin at sundown on Friday? And it was sundown on Friday, and the last thing we did in the garden tomb was we went to a little area, and we took communion. And I just had a spell. You say, why aren't you? You're always having spells. Well, listen, if you love Jesus, you ought to have a right to have a spell. Amen? Don't you try to take my right away to have a spell. But we went to that little place they had, and they had some bread and some cups for us there, and we took communion 
unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine and little olive wood cups and we passed it around and it was getting to be sundown on Friday in Jerusalem and we partook in the Lord's Supper and it was a wonderful experience. But I've told y'all about that on Friday. Let me tell you my favorite point in the whole week. We had been to Caesarea by the sea and then we went to Mount Carmel where Elijah fought the prophets of Baal. And I got to preach. Now, I didn't preach all the time. I let Don preach one time. You say, well, you hog. I, well, listen, I may never get back to Jerusalem. You know, Don's a young man. He may go back 40 or 50 times. I don't know. If he gets in charge of the group, he can preach wherever he wants to. Well, we stopped at the monastery on Mount Carmel. And so I got out my Bible and I started preaching. And I thought about the 450 prophets of Baal. And old Elijah thought he was the only one. God had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in a cave. And Elijah didn't know anything about that. He went to old Ahab and he said, Ahab, let's have a contest. He said, it hadn't rained in three and a half years. James says, Elijah was a man like we are, but he shut up the heavens from rain because it didn't rain for three and a half years. Most precious commodity on earth was water in those days. And Elijah challenged old King Ahab, turn loose your prophets of Baal and let's have a, uh, let's have a contest on Mount Carmel. And the God that answers with fire, he is God. And so those old prophets of Baal, they worshiped the sun. And so they began at sunrise and they set up their sacrifice and they chanted all day and they prayed all day and they cried all day and they cut themselves. And old Elijah was just having a spell. He was going, well, you might ought to yell a little louder. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Maybe gotten old and hard of hearing. And you say, preacher, did he really do that? That's what the Bible says. In fact, there's one instance he said, well, you might ought to wait a minute because he might have had to go to the bathroom. Maybe he'll be back. And, and I mean, old Elijah, you're talking about being a preacher. Old Elijah was, man, he was hammering those prophets of Baal. And then about the time for the evening offering, he said, okay, boy, you've had all day it's my time and he said hey I need some help he had repaired the altar they put the sacrifice on the altar they put wood on the altar they they poured water on the sacrifice now what did I tell you was the most precious commodity in the world water they 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 poured barrels of water in fact they dug a trench that had dust in it and then the altar was made of rocks and, and Elijah prayed a little simple prayer and said God uh, if you are God, answer by fire. And I mean, he had no more than got the words out of his mouth. Then fire from heaven came down and it consumed the offering and it consumed the rocks and it consumed the water and it consumed the dust and it consumed everything. Now, I know some of you firemen are sitting there going, ah, Brother Mike, I'm a fireman. I know dust doesn't burn. Oh yeah, you need to be a Christian fireman. I want to tell you that. When the fire of God falls, everything burns up. If you don't believe me, look for Sodom and Gomorrah. You won't find them. They're not there. God burned them up. You won't even find ashes where they were. They're gone forever. Man, I got up there and, and I was preaching away and I thought, well, we need to close with something. I had Pat, before I left, get me some songs, old hymns. In fact, I went to the Broadman Hymnal. You say, how old is the Broadman Hymnal? I think it came over on the Mayflower. No, it's really, <laughs> it was made in 1948, the year I was born. That's how old it is. It's old. And we had some wonderful old hymns in the Broadman Hymnal. But man, we had a service on top of Mount Carmel where Elijah called down the fire of God. And he said, and the Bible says Elijah was a man like we are, yet he prayed for three and a half years. It didn't rain. And I thought, how do we close a service on the Mount of Olives? And I thought, hmm. What old hymn talks about Elijah on the Mount of Olives?
I mean, Mount, of, uh, Mount Carmel. And I thought, hmm, I don't know any old hymns. But I do know a new hymn. I know a worship song. And last time I was in Jerusalem, last time I was on Mount Carmel, hadn't even been written. But we sing it a good bit around here. And the chorus goes like this. Behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. It's at the trumpet call, so lift your voice. It's the year of jubilee, and out of Zion's hill salvation comes. Behold, he comes. Riding on the clouds, he's shining like the sun. It's at the trumpet call, so lift your voice. It's the year of jubilee, and out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. When I got through preaching, the group said, Brother Mike, we've never heard you like that. And I said, man, when you turn a preacher loose on Mount Carmel and he stands in the footprints of old Elijah and somebody's written a worship song called Days of Elijah, you better watch out. You say, well, preacher, what, what's the whole point of this? I stood on the Temple Mount and I watched Muslims who don't like us they make no bones about it. They do not like us. We had a husband and wife on our trip. They wanted to hold hands on top of the Temple Mount. The Muslims had a fit. Oh, no, you can't do that. Hmm. They watched us like hawks on top of the Temple Mount. I sat down on the top of the Temple Mount. And I got to thinking, where did those false prophets come from? Well, they worshiped the same gods the Philistines worshiped. They go all the way back to the time of Goliath of Gath, who was a Philistine. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to go from Philistine the Palestinian. Now, I, I don't hate the Palestinians. In fact, Friday afternoon, we were at a Palestinian gift shop in Bethlehem, and the owner of that gift shop came up to me, and he shook my hand. He had tears in his eyes, and he said, I know you're a man of God. And he said, tell your people to pray for, for Arab Christians, because he said, all over the world, what they call the Arab Spring is really the Muslim Spring. And he said, our own people whose blood runs in their veins, look at us as the enemy because we follow Christ. He said, pray for the Arab Christians. He specifically asked for prayer for those in Bethlehem and in Nazareth and in the other areas in Israel. And then he also mentioned those Christians in Egypt and those Muslim Christians in Pakistan and Afghanistan who are viewed as enemies by their own people. And you know what I thought about? I thought about that song, These Are the Days of Elijah. 
And I thought about that passage in Ezekiel where Ezekiel saw a valley of dry bones. And those dry bones came back together. What are those dry bones? Those dry bones are Israel. Our God reigns. And he's bigger than any problem you have or will ever have. And he hears you when, he, when you pray. I'm so thankful. These are the days of Elijah. Behold, he comes. Shining like the sun. Riding on the clouds. At the trumpet call. Lift your voice. It's the year of Jubilee. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. Father, I thank you for the trip we've had. And Lord, I know it was not possible to take all these folks. But I pray today they have sensed the excitement. And more than that, the enthusiasm. And Lord, the word enthusiasm means in, which stands for into, and theos, which stands for God. God into us. May we never lose sight of the fact that this world is not our home and there will be struggles and trials and tribulations which you have promised. Be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Father, if there's someone here today that's not saved, if there's someone here that needs a church home, Father, I pray this would be the day, this would be the hour they would come to know Christ, whom to know is life eternal and joy everlasting. And now speak during this invitation. Father, if there are those here who need to claim Christ, those here who need to be baptized, those here who need to come to the altar, pray for a deeper walk. Father, those who have specific needs, they just want to come to the altar. Like, a, like Elijah, a man of like passions, and yet he prayed for three and a half years. It did not rain. Lord, I pray you'd hear our prayer today in this place, not for Elijah's sake, but for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.